You're listening to the ILLA podcast, the online home of lectures and conversations hosted by the Institute for International Law and the Humanities at the Melbourne Law School. So welcome everyone to this event uh, for the Institute for International Law and the Humanities Festival of Conversations. For those who don't know me, my name is uh, Kathleen Birrell and I'm a McKenzie postdoctoral fellow here at Melbourne Law School and I'm joined by Tim Lindgren, who is also at Melbourne Law School as a PhD candidate. So before we begin, I'd like to acknowledge the Wurundjeri peoples of the Kulin Nation, the traditional owners and custodians of the unceded land and waters on and alongside which I live and work, and pay my respects to the elders of this community, past, present and emerging. And I extend a warm welcome to any Indigenous participants who are among us today. So thanks everyone for coming. In this session, we are thrilled to be joined in conversation by Dr. Daniel Matthews of the School of Law at the University of Warwick to discuss his new book, Earthbound, The Aesthetics of Sovereignty in the Anthropocene, very soon to appear, um, published by Edinburgh University Press. So Earthbound provides an important contribution to the disciplinary collisions and disruptive politics of the Anthropocene. And here, of course, I'm referring to uh, the Anthropocene thesis, which controversially proposes the inauguration of a new geological epoch, acknowledging the impact of the Anthropos or human um, and that it has assumed geological proportions. Scientific consensus hasn't been reached on the official naming and dating of the Anthropocene Epoch, but the recalibrations inaugurated by this idea have reverberated across a bewildering array of scholarly disciplines and contemporary discourses. And these recalibrations disrupt several of the modernist tenets that inform dominant legal norms and mechanisms, including the conventional privileging of the sovereign nation state and the rights-bearing sovereign subject now contextualised within this idea within the planetary. And it's these recalibrations and their far-reaching implications that animate Dan's new book. So in Earthbound, he suggests that the Anthropocene heralds the end of the world insofar as it signals that the predominant modes by which we organise and represent reality are unravelling. And this extends to modern legal and political forms, which remain resolutely orientated around sovereignty and an unveiling of the constellation of ideas, techniques and practices that constitute the dominant sovereign imaginary. So we're really looking forward to hearing more about the impetus for this work and how it emerged in Dan's own scholarship. Importantly, this book enters the fray at a moment of heightened engagement with the climate crisis. Uh, crisis that's brought into sharp focus by the recent report of the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, the IPCC report, and its sobering findings and political reverberations. And accompanying negotiations and contestations are animated by a resurgent nationalism and what Dan aptly describes as the dreary utopianism of sovereignty. And Earthbound instead elaborates an aesthetic account of sovereignty and describes the jurisdictional technologies and practices that anaesthetize us to the realities of our emplaced and earthly relationships. 
This sensory deprivation obscures the forces, spaces and actors that are habitually considered irrelevant to modernity and denies the ultimate revelation that humans are not players in the inert theatre of nature. Instead, in the disorienting moment of the Anthropocene, the curtain is drawn back, the scenery and props come to life. Um, and the distinction between the human and the non-human is no longer assured. In this book, the alchemy of the theatre of modernity is undone by a reading of the aesthetics of sovereignty. The grammar of sovereignty, made explicit in the rights-bearing subject of modern law, gives way to the language of obligation, binding and attachment in an elaboration of what um, Dan describes as a minor jurisprudence of obligation. Our sense of the people of pop popular sovereignty, normatively construed as the aggregation of individual parts, is redefined by alliances formed on the basis of shared need. And ultimately, we find ourselves enmeshed in earthly, fleshy relationships of dependence amidst the a revelation that we are irredeemably earthbound. So with that introduction, I'd like to pass over now to Tim Lindgren to begin with a discussion of the positioning of this particular conversation within the ongoing and emergent purposes and commitments of this institute, ILA, to scholarship of what we might call the law and variety, broadly construed here as law and the humanities, as well as the impetus and organising themes for Dan's book. So thanks, Tim. Uh, thank you, Kathleen, and I hope everyone can hear me fine. So like Kathleen, I want to start by acknowledging that I'm speaking from uh, the unceded territory of the Wurundjeri people of the Kuli Nation as the traditional owners of this land, uh, and that I pay my respect to the elders past and present. Uh, and I should also note that this is precisely a gesture of law. So there's a recognition of uh, Wurundjeri sovereignty and Wurundjeri laws and the obligations that I hold uh, to such as an uninvited visitor on this uh, land. Uh, so it really is an invitation as well for us to reflect on um, where we stand and how we carry law into places that already have uh, law and how we take responsibility of how we live with uh, all law. Uh, so with that said, I want to uh, start off by congratulating you, Dan, on this really terrific uh, books. It's truly inspiring work and it's been uh, such a privilege to read it in such detail. Uh, and it's really exciting to have this conversation with you about your book and perhaps particularly so in the context of a festival that celebrates the Institute for International Law and the Humanities. So Kathleen touched up on this a little bit as well, but in one of the previous sessions, James uh, Parker, he noted that it was uh, really terrific to see how his field and uh, the, the field of his panelists had uh, come to fruition through and within ELA over the last 12 years. And we don't have this uh, very impressive experience with ELA, but uh, we uh, it did invite us to reflect on the fact that this book seems to mark an ever so increasing attention to the place of the ecological in the larger field of uh, law and the humanities uh, and also within ELA as an institute. 
So building on this this excitement that uh, Kathleen and I have for this book, uh, and perhaps as a way of connecting to to the uh, acknowledgement of country and the question of thinking about how we enunciate law and how we carry law into place, uh, I'm wondering if you perhaps could, or if we could start by inviting you to reflect on how you came to write this book. So in broad terms, what inspired you to write this uh, this book. And in responding to this, uh, you're also welcome to speak to uh, the audience or, or perhaps if you want to mention or touch up on what audiences you hope will read with you uh, in this book. Thanks, Tim. And um, good evening, everyone. It's uh, morning where I am. Um, uh, and it's very good to be with you. And thank you very much indeed for the uh, generous introduction. Um, I uh, came to start working on these themes um, in around 2016. Um, I was in something of a uh, post-PhD uh, slump. Um, I had finished my doctoral studies, I'd started a new job um, and was you know, casting around for ideas about where my research was going to go next. Um, my, my PhD research was um, primarily around questions of political community, notions of sovereignty, jurisdiction, um, but particularly read through a, um, a, a deconstructive lens. So the work of Jacques Derrida, Jean-Luc and so forth were particularly relevant uh, references for that, uh, for that particular project. And so I was keen to move away from these, um, uh, from that literature and was looking for new ideas. And I kind of, just stumbled into, as you do, you know, lost in the library one day, um, uh, the work of Bruno Latour, um, someone who I hadn't engaged with in, in, in detail before, started reading some of his earlier works, and, um, and through Latour's work, um, his more recent work, particularly the Gifford Lectures, which he gave in um, 2013 at the University of Edinburgh, which was subsequently turned into a, um, a book facing Gaia, um, this was really my first introduction to um, ecological questions, the questions of uh, non-human agency, the need to rethink the human subject in networked um, forms. Um, and I was really uh, uh, taken by this, um, uh, by this theoretical approach, but also the substance of what he was um, encouraging us to think more concretely about. So from that, I started to read much more carefully the scientific literature around uh, climate change and became particularly interested in this concept that Kathleen introduced of the Anthropocene, this putative new geological epoch in which um, some humans have, or some human social forms have, um, engendered an entire transformation of the Earth system, so much so that we've entered a new geological age, a ge geological epoch. Um, so part of what drew me to think more carefully about this uh, material was, I mean, I, th I think like many people who, um, and I, perhaps it should be clear from the background that I just sketched out, I, my work previously wasn't in environmental law. I wasn't engaged in environmental questions. I was more interested in, in these questions about sovereignty, political community, and so forth. Um, but I think like many people who have recently started to think more carefully uh, or, or in more detail about these ecological environmental questions, when I started to read the science, um, popular surveys of the science, but then on specific topics, some of the um, scientific literature itself, um, 
I was you know, just terrified, struck, um, had a sort of sense of disorientation, I suppose, um, that the severity of the challenge that we are uh, facing with climate change in terms of the technological, social, economic transformations that need to take place, um, and the kind of catastrophic futures that are um, painted in these rather dry scientific tones, um, it was a kind of jarring experience. And I think like many people, um, I mean, I don't know about the audience, but I, I myself thought of climate change as you know, one among many challenges that we need to think carefully about, but hadn't engaged in, in any detail myself. But when I looked at this uh, material, I was really, um, as I say, disorientated um, uh, by it. Um, I'll come back to that, um, uh, what, perhaps why that um, sense of disorientation is significant in, in a moment. Um, but uh, one of the things that also struck me when I was reading this literature was um, there were certain resonances with the work that I'd previously done. So the kind of deconstructive approach to thinking about political community in which we want to deconstruct the subject or challenge extant notions of uh, community, um, push at the limits of modern thinking and and the modern and modern categories and so forth. Um, this was precisely what these scientists were doing and saying in this literature that I was reading. So, you know, geologists were telling us or telling me that the nature culture distinction had needed to be undone or had come to an end, that distinctions between life and non-life no longer held in any kind of uh, concrete or um, operative way. And so there was something now, and these are sort of, you know, in a sense, crudely put classic deconstructive gestures to challenge binaries and undo these bifurcations. And so there was something, um, I think, that attracted me or that resonated with me at a kind of intellectual theoretical level, that there was a sense that the modern categories and divisions that often are used to structure our understanding of social, legal, uh, you know, lawful relations, political relations, needed to be undone. But this was being called for from a very different disciplinary context that was grounded in a very different set of traditions that was also um, had a kind of um, materiality that was lacking in the literatures and traditions that I've been engaging with um, previously. Um, just to go back very briefly to this notion, this sort of sense of disorientation, I think part of you know, the sort of uh, striking confrontation of reading the scientific literature on, on climate and the implications around the Anthropocene was, was also that a lot of the literature that I had engaged in previously around sovereignty and the debates about the transformations of sovereignty in the context of globalization and um, ideas around sovereignty in relation to biopolitics. I mean, we can maybe talk about these themes um, uh, in more detail in a moment, but there was an absolute silence in this literature on ecological, environmental, um, anthropocenic questions. And that seemed to me really, really striking that all this energy that had been expended in understanding the very complex ways in which sovereignty was being reconfigured in global scales of governance and so forth had nothing to say about the, um, this extraordinary transformation that that was happening to the earth system as a whole. And it seemed um, a striking absence in so many of the, uh, the dominant approaches to, uh, to sovereignty that uh, I've been thinking about and engaged with. And in a sense, that was the initial prompt for, for the project was to try and address that gap in a sense, but also to reflect on what, why is that the case? I mean, what is it about the 
concepts and the conceptual coordinates that we mobilize in um, our understanding of sovereignty from both orthodox, you know, traditional approaches, but also critical approaches, that actually doesn't allow us to get at the forces and relations, the form of forms of agency that we need to attend to in the context of the Anthropocene and the changing climate. So that was the, uh, I guess, the initial question, um, and that's what I wanted to uh, explore, you know, at, at some length. Thank you. That's really fascinating. Uh, really fascinating to hear how you. Uh, I think it it uh, sets us up for a deeper conversation that we we'll get to in a little while about the field that this book enters. Uh, I had a uh, further question on how you work through uh, the question of the modern. So you refer to Bruno Latour in your work uh, and to this notion of disassociation. Uh, in terms of time, I think we'll move on to the next set of questions so we can touch up on a number of different categories uh, that comes up in your work. But if you get the chance for a conversation to return to the notion of the modern, feel, feel invited to do so. Uh, so I just pass it on to Kathleen now. Thanks, Tim. Um, <laughs> it'll be up to you, Dan, to try and work that into uh, your next response. Um, <laughs> but um, yeah, maybe we can just move more explicitly now to some questions of sovereignty and political aesthetics, which are obviously central to the book. And you've already um, elaborated some of those um, in thinking about um, your book as an intervention into um, uh, both orthodox and critical debates around sovereignty and the, the ways that these have not um, so far or traditionally been engaged with um, ecological questions. And so just thinking about that um, and the way that you have um, theorised sovereignty through your book, um, I'm wondering if you can reflect on, um, you know, the significance of that kind of intervention, but also thinking about um, the way that you have um, read and theorised political aesthetics and its relationship to sovereignty. So your book is obviously animated by this idea of sovereignty as a framing device, as a dramaturgy um, by which the actors of modernity remain sort of transfixed. And you describe the artistry of the modern world as enlivened by um, what you describe as its political aesthetics. And also draw upon this idea um, uh, well, um, much discussed um, Kantian idea of the as if, the logic of the as if, that is the, of the fiction or the myth, as one of the hallmarks of sovereignty's aesthetic aspect. And so I'm wondering if you can elaborate on this idea of political aesthetics and its relationship to sovereignty and the way that your book really takes that up. Sure. Um, I'll, I'll try my best. Um, I maybe will park the... Uh the invitation to reflect on who the moderns are for the time being, Tim. We can maybe come back to it in the Q&A. Um, but maybe I'll just you know, start by elaborating something that I mentioned already, that my sense was that the dominant th approaches to sovereignty um, weren't able to get at the kinds of questions, the kinds of uh, relations that the Anthropocene was prompting us to address. So 
I think, you know, rather crudely, we might think of there being three dominant literatures or approaches to thinking about um, sovereignty. I mean, there are many others, and this isn't meant to be exhaustive, but I think these perhaps are the, the dominant ones, which is, firstly, is a, 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 an attempt to assess the changing nature of sovereignty in the context of globalization. Um, a second strand might um, be put as a kind of uh, a resistance to this kind of analysis and the insistence on the importance of sovereignty in rather classic modern terms that the state hasn't withered away that we need to continue understanding the way in which uh, the state continues to structure um, uh, legal and political life and um, this in particular particularly in the context I started to, to research the, the project was um, is, is often debated in the context of neo-nationalism something that Kathleen you mentioned at the beginning of the uh, of the discussion um, and then a third strand um, concerns the intersection between sovereign power and biopolitics. So um, Foucault famously elaborates this notion of biopolitics emerging from the uh, 17th century, the idea that, um, uh, that uh, governmental technique and you know, power becomes dispersed and involved in forms of management, security, uh, the hierarchization of bodies, et cetera, et cetera. And a lot of work, particularly I'm thinking of Giorgio Gamma's work, seeks to explore the connections between sovereignty and this other regime of power that, that Foucault introduces. So these are the sort of, I guess, as I say, crudely put, three dominant kind of traditions or strands of research around uh, 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 sovereignty. And each of these, it seems to me, fail to provide adequate concepts or coordinates to address the Anthropocene and its various uh, challenges. I think if we just take, for example, the, the, the extraordinary, you know, huge literature on uh, the transformations that globalization has wrought to, uh, to sovereignty, even the, uh, to analyze the changing dynamics of sovereignty in the context of globalization sets up um, a set of concepts that doesn't get at what precisely what you said in the introduction um, uh, Kathleen, which is a, an awareness of the planetary. So I think Deepesh Jakobati uh, puts this most pithily in a sense when he says that the, the globe of globalization is not the same globe as the globe of global warming. The globe of globalization is, or the global of globalization is constructed through a series of um, human to human networks, forms of communication and trade and the institutions that facilitate these activities activities and, and seek to regulate them. The global, global, uh, global warming, the, the global of global warming, refers to an extraordinarily wide range of chemical processes, ocean conveyors, the carbon and nitrogen cycles, and attention to how the atmosphere is transformed by certain um, uh, emissions, uh, a sensitivity to the um, to carbon sinks and the, the materiality of given terrains and the role that it will play in um, uh, heating, global heating or global cooling. I mean, what we are aware of, and, and the human in this is a, a kind of incidental part because, of course, and this is a point that Chakramati makes, is that I mean, planetary heating is something that has happened to other planets with the absence of, um, of human agency. Now, of course, human agency in our context is of absolutely central importance, but I guess the point is that it opens up an invitation to think at the scale of the planet and, and, and within a kind of earthly frame rather than a global frame invites a very different set of, a, a very different scenography 
to the one that we um, have within the um, uh, the kind of literature around globalization and its effects on on sovereignty. So I guess my my my, my point here is that. The coordinates that are used to understand the change in dynamics of sovereignty, in a sense, constitutively inure us to the very chat forces and relations that we need to pay attention to in the context um, uh, of the Anthropocene. And so, I mean, it says this is the, you know, the heart of the argument of the book is that um, we, um, the, the kind of framing devices, the, these concepts, whether it's about the global and globalization or about territory or about popular sovereignty, these framing, these provide a set of uh, framing devices that actually ensure that the ecological and environmental forces and relations that we need to be engaging with are either backgrounded in our, in our field of vision or are excluded entirely, just remain completely off stage. Um, so trying to analyze, uh, and just trying to describe how this um, is um, constructed, how this particular kind of imaginary is constructed is um, central to uh, uh, to the book. Um, now, in answering the, or addressing this issue, I've already began to talk about aesthetics and, and, and what I understand by political aesthetics. And um, we often think of aesthetics as being um, a study of either a study of particular aesthetic objects, um, literature, film, art, and so forth, or about a, a more philosophical tradition, a kind of Kantian tradition of um, uh, a question of the nature of the, the beautiful and judgments on the beautiful. The notion of aesthetics that I work with in the, in the book is um, a slightly different one, which is to recall the um, kind of an older sense of aesthetics as a thesis, which is concerned with sense perception in, in, in its broadest terms. So the question of political aesthetics is, well, how are our political concepts or our political institutions, um, our political categories, how are they implicated in sensitizing us to the world in a particular way? And how, are they uh, how do they, ha they have certain aesthetic effects in the sense that we are um, attuned, um, uh, sensitized to certain forces, social and material um, uh, forces and relations, and are desensitized or anesthetized to, cert to certain other social forces and relations. I mean, as I've sort of, uh, suggested already, one way of thinking about this is precisely this, this the kind of frame metaphor is something that actually Neil Walker has um, explored in a, in a, uh, in a recent um, article. And, this idea that sovereignty, perhaps the strongest sense of which we can approach sovereignty, is as a framing device that provides a um, vehicle through which we can represent certain social activities, certain social relations, um, and background or exclude certain others. Um, so this, uh, is, in a sense, is the kind of fundamental notion of, a, of, of political aesthetics that I was working with and trying to explore the way in which sovereignty achieves this kind of particular framing, which inures us to these uh, ecological uh, challenges. I, I, can, I can say some, I can say more, but uh, maybe I'll just pause at this point. <laughs> Thanks, Dan. Um, I think I'll, um, I'll, I'll, I'll hand over to Tim for some more questions, but um, I think that, um, you know, what we want to move to now is um, 
sort of related to what I was thinking about the way in your book you describe what could be called the alchemy of sovereignty, which sits uncomfortably alongside this aspiration to think the political without, um, to quote you, Dan, um, continually spinning around the maypole of sovereignty. And I think that's a very evocative description um, and um, something that opens out to a, a broader discussion around um, the idea of transcending sovereignty. And I'll hand over to Tim to, um, to take that a bit further. Thanks, Kathleen. And the task for Dan to tie together all questions becomes uh, larger. So uh, I think, but I think that's a good, good place to come to the question that I wanted to ask. Uh, so moving a bit further into your work on territory and terrain and perhaps the legal register of obligations, uh, I wanted to start off uh, that kind of theme of the book by asking you about this notion of transcending sovereignty. So a theme that uh, seems to come through in your book is a sense of caution or perhaps even prudence to uh, to this uh, desire in some critical legal scholarship that we just need to transcend sovereignty. So the transcendence of sovereignty as a kind of political zeitgeist. Um, and I'm curious to uh, about this caution and uh, how you invite us to, as Donna Haraway says, uh, staying with the trouble, stay with, with the trouble of sovereignty. Um, so I'm wondering if you could perhaps just elaborate on this attentiveness to the question of transcending sovereignty and what it generates in your work. Uh, so what happens as well then with sovereignty when we start thinking through the legal registers that you uh, foreground in your work? Uh, are we perhaps thinking about the form of delinking from sovereignty that... Uh, those like Walter McNuller would point towards, uh, or uh, are we doing something else? So a fairly open-ended question about, about the notion of transcending or staying with sovereignty. Yeah, thanks, thanks, Tim. I mean, I'm, I'm glad that you pointed to this, um, uh, to this point because it was, it was something that I struggled with in the, in the course of uh, writing the book um, and the passage that you um, refer to is at the very end and it sort of is indicative that it was right at the very end that I just needed, felt that I needed to address this question um, about to what extent is this an argument about transcending sovereignty or doing away with sovereignty entirely or to what extent is it an argument about rethinking and working with um, sovereignty and I think the why I struggled with it um, uh, uh, so much, I guess, is that I was drawn in two different um, uh, directions. So at a theoretical register, I mean, if you follow the, the kind of sketch that I provided of uh, what the, the book is trying to get at, um, that actually the dominant concepts that we mobilize when we're thinking about sovereignty, whether it's territory or popular sovereignty, or, and are, are constitutively involved in anesthetizing us to the challenges that we need to address. They don't provide adequate coordinates for thinking about um, anthrop the Anthropocene and, and, and the climate crisis. One conclusion would be, well, therefore, you know, we need some entirely new way of mediating political community. We need to get entirely beyond this, um, uh, this framing device of um, 
uh, of sovereignty. And in a, at a purely theoretical register, I have a huge degree of sympathy um, with that. Um, but um, on a political or pragmatic um, register, it seems incredibly challenging. Um, and just to bring, uh, bring up the, the point that... Uh, Kathleen was making about the, the kind of the desire or the effort to move away from this, you know, this maypole metaphor that I uh, use. I mean, it, it, it is extraordinarily difficult to transcend the framing devices that we associate with somebody. And in a sense, this was the, one of the points about approaching somebody from an aesthetic uh, uh, point of view is that even as sovereignty has been reconfigured in lots of, you know, complex ways that different regimes of um, different governance regimes and, and the kind of reorganization of governmental competencies and so forth, what seems to be remarkably enduring is the framing devices that it provides um, for citizens, for, um, and for academics to think about the, um, the nature of political community and the way in which uh, communal bond is, is mediated. And in a sense, this was brought home to me at the beginning of the, of the project, 2016, Brexit vote and um, and uh, Trump and etc. Cetera, etc. Cetera. I mean, and the resurgence of national neo-nationalism in all of different forms, sub-nation, you know, sub-national uh, forms reasserting and seeking to claim nationhood and so forth. The sense that we live in a post-sovereign world seems to be utterly disconnected from the re- lived realities of many people. Not least in Hong Kong, where it was at the time where the question of sovereignty was incredibly pressing. So I guess. You know, I had the, I sort of have this, uh, you know, Jekyll and Hyde kind of uh, thing going on in my head where there's a sort of theoretical impulse. Well, sovereignty is obviously part of the problem. And, I, and that's obviously what I, I'm trying to show in the book, that continuing to think with these concepts is absolutely, in, you know, is, is part of maintaining a kind of destructive status quo because we can't even see let alone address the sort of challenges that we need to be dealing with if we continue working within these orthodox frames. At the same time, if you want to maintain some relation to political movements to, um, um, uh, and the kind of lived realities of um, existing politics, then you, um, I think you have to remain kind of uh, to some extent tied and working through and working with this um, framework, however compromised it may be. So, um, I mean, you mentioned um, uh, this, this Haraway line about staying with the trouble, and it's precisely this that I you know, end up trying to do. And perhaps this sort of bifurcated sense, you know, two senses of normativity in a sense, you know, the normative impulse and a, and a political impulse pulling in slightly different directions. And it's precisely working through that challenge that I think that we need to um, direct our energies rather than hope for some, I mean, rather utopian. I mean, if, if, the, if the existing uh, frameworks of sovereignty are drearily utopian, then there's something perhaps equally dreary about the wish for some transcendence, a leap into some other kind of political formation. I, I mean, I just don't know what that would look like. So, um, so yeah, so working through these different kind of impulses, I think is what I was ended up trying to do. And it's a kind of perhaps an uncomfortable conclusion to the, to the book, but it's, um, it's, you know, it's the uncomfortable position I found myself in as I concluded it, I think. 
That's very, very helpful, though. Thank you for elaborating further on that. I think it's a theme that many of us struggle with in one way or another. Uh, I mean, the way that it invites me now when you're speaking about it is perhaps the question of placing sovereignty or the sovereignty that I live with uh, as a modern uh, and being careful about what what that sovereignty does to the political uh, world that I, that I live in and also perhaps peripheralizing that a bit uh, so that I can look uh, through other forms of, of relationships with the land. And I think you uh, developed that in, in some great details through the, the, the language of obligations and the question of scaling and so forth. And so we did have a few questions that we wanted to unpack on that as well, but perhaps we can get to that in the Q&A uh, and I'll pass it over to Kathleen now. Well, it's just, except I just remembered, Tim, you had another question about um, you know, delinking. And um, I, I don't know, but I may, maybe just very quickly um, just jump in on, uh, on this. Because, and it also, you know, I'm, I'm haunted by your question about the moderns. So I, maybe I'll, um, uh, <laughs> I'll try, try and address this too. Because I mean, you mentioned obligation as well, which is obviously one of the, the themes in the, in the book. I guess what you say, is it a question, if I understood your question, Correctly about the, the idea of transcending sovereignty. Is it a question of delinking from sovereignty? And I suppose one of the themes, or a slightly different approach that I was taking the book, is to find other links, other forms of attachment, other connections that persist beneath and alongside the kind of sovereign framing of territory, authority, rights, and um, explore these as possibilities, um, generative possibilities for thinking both beyond but with. Uh, sovereignty in uh, in new ways, and so um, and part of this is to is to try and um, uh, recuperate a, a thinking often with obligations as opposed to a thinking of rights. And so, I mean, just very briefly to to return to this question of who the moderns are in this book, and I think you you rightly point to the fact that I'm sure I use this term far too frequently, and as a shorthand for a much bigger set of ideas about modernity and the institutions of modernity. But one way of thinking about the moderns is to think of them as individuals. And the birth of the individual is absolutely central to the onset of modernity. And the, um, the birth of the individual as a rights-bearing subject is absolutely central to this, to this story. So it seems to me that if we are to ex explore ways in which we might be bound otherwise, other than through the um, architecture associated with uh, modern sovereignty, there's something productive perhaps in shifting to a language of, of obligation. And indeed the title, which is a, a, the Earthbound, which is a term that I take from Latour, is a, he suggests is a kind of emergent subjectivity within the Anthropocene. Um, if the moderns were human individuals who had a, who were situated in nature, you know, constituted through subject-object forms of knowledge and so forth, you know, of the sort that I'm sure we're all familiar with, then the earthbound are, uh, is, a, is a way of rendering the human in a, in a new way, which is sensitive to these various geological, ecological entanglements that I've been uh, 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 gesturing to. And so if we're to articulate those entanglements, the language of rights in, in, a, in a lawful register, the language of rights seems to me um, inarticulate 
in that um, in, in a sense. And the register of obligation with its association with ligaments, with bonds, was offered a way in which we might, uh, I, I might tr try and articulate that. So in the, to bring that back to um, the sense of delinking from sovereignty, is, I think it's more a question of, of finding alternative linkages that persist within and, and exceed um, the, the, the kind of uh, formations that, that sovereignty constructs. Thank you. That's that's a very masterful way of tying together the many tasks or the many questions that we uh, passed on to you. Uh, I think Kathleen is going to uh, invite us to think a bit about uh, the broader context that the book emerges in. Thanks. We're actually coming close to opening out to questions and comments from the audience. So. This is the moment to gather your thoughts, if you will. <laughs> but before we do, I'd just like to turn to um, some broader questions about critical legal studies and the general absence around themes of political ecology and the prospect of new trajectories in this direction that this book um, is part of. So really with the exception of some more peripheral engagements with critiques of political economy, um, especially intersections between ecology and empire, ecofeminism, and the emergence of, or perhaps gestures toward the emergence of a critical environmental law. Um, the kind of complex jurist, jurisprudential and political challenges posed by the Anthropocene that you have discussed here haven't really animated critical legal thinking so far. And I'm wondering if you can comment on this general absence and perhaps even the political significance of critical scholarly interventions in this space, including perhaps your own. Thanks. Yeah, sure. I mean, it, perhaps worth underscoring that you know, we're having this conversation um, hosted kindly by the um, Institute for International Law and the Humanities. Um, and so one of the umbrella terms that have been used to organise critical thought around the law in recent years anyway, and particularly I think in the Australian uh, context has been around this notion of uh, law and the humanities. Um, and I guess and, and that's something that I've obviously been engaged in and find an incredibly productive and um, insightful tradition in which to um, to, to engage and, um, and to write within and think with. Um, but obviously the, the you know, one way of thinking about the sort of absence of engagement in these topics is I have to dwell on the, the humanities, you know, and the, the construction of the human, I mean, the clues in the title, the, the construction of the human in the humanities is perhaps still very much indebted to these um, uh, modern uh, categories and, and, and ways of thinking. And, um, even if you, you know, I mean, it's striking, for instance, one of the dominant strands of um, critical thought, perhaps it's an old, rather old fashioned now, but um, uh, deconstructive um, engagement, particularly in sort of ethical questions. I mean, the, the energy spent in deconstructing the subject in that, in that kind of tradition didn't, doesn't unambiguously or obviously lead us in that tradition to um, uh, environmental and ecological questions. And so, I mean, I think it's worth also reflecting that the humanities and to situate the law as a humanity or in conversation with the humanities also engages with a particular 
institutional organization um, in which the humanities is explicitly or implicitly set against the natural sciences. And if we're reinscribing these kinds of divisions that where the humanities have access to some sense of the, uh, uh, of the human and the, the natural sciences have access to a very different and incompatible sense of the human. And the Anthropocene and the climate crisis calls on us to traverse these kinds of disciplinary distinctions in, I think, new and uh, creative, uh, new and creative ways. Um, so I think, you know, part of, partly it's the kind of the traditions of thought, um, partly it's the resources that get, uh, tend to be used within non humanities um, uh, scholarship. But you know, having said that, I think that's not to dismiss the humanities as an absolutely essential ingredient in thinking about this um, problem. And I'm very struck by the, um, the, this line from Amitav Ghosh, which is that the, the climate crisis is as much a crisis of the imagination as it is anything else. And if we don't, I mean, I think the forms of analysis that are able to connect the way in which power, law, and the imagination work together are absolutely essential if we are to get beyond the kind of current impasses that we find ourselves. We need genuinely imaginative and creative thinking in this context, and we need to understand how our existing categories and ways of thinking are implicated in the production of the, uh, of the crisis that, that, that uh, is in front of us. So um, there is, a, I think, a pressing need for um, uh, creative and critical scholars to engage with, it, with these themes, and those working with the law, within the law and humanities, I think, are well positioned to do that, so long as we think, we, I include myself here, we think carefully about the traditions of humanism, the traditions of um, uh, humanistic knowledge and learning that we are uh, mobilising and seek to push them into, um, into new directions. Thanks so much. That's a that's a fabulous response and um, something that uh, we'll all be thinking and working with uh, for years to come. <laughs> so um, I'd like to open out now to questions. If people could um, re use the raise hand function rather than the chat uh, box, it would be easier to um, to field those questions. So. Um, Please um, do that now if if you do have questions. But if not, Tim and I will just carry on. <laughs> so. I have a question. If I I have put my hand up, but I think you can't see it because it's the same colour as my wall. It is. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so much for that. Um, Dan, I haven't had the pleasure yet of reading the book, but it sounds like it should be at the top of my to-read list. And I'm particularly intrigued by the relationship between aesthetic and anaesthetic. Um, I suppose my question uh, touches on the thing you ended up with, which is attending to the traditions that we mobilise. So I'm thinking about the sovereign claim of sovereignty as a way of speaking about political authority. And I'm thinking about the critiques of Anthropocene as itself a certain kind of reinscription of 
uh, an imperial legacy by, you know, people have called it the capitalocene. People say that thinking about the Anthropocene is another, um, is also Eurocentric. So I guess I'm wondering what do you do with the question of the particularity of sovereignty as a, as a, a tradition of thinking about political authority that's already particularly historically overburdened um, and the way that there are um, plenty of people pushing back against the, the kind of developmentalism that's led us to this place of exhausting the earth or near exhausting the earth. So what do you do with the question of Eurocentrism, I suppose, is a quick way of putting it. Shall I, shall I address this now? Yeah. Yeah, go ahead. Uh, we don't have any other questions at the moment. Yeah, sure. okay. yeah. Oh, well, yeah, thanks. Thanks very much, um, uh, Cynthia. Um, you're not alone in not having, not having read the book. I think there's a select uh, audience of uh, three at the moment, including myself. Um, so it's, uh, you know, available in all good bookstores uh, uh, soon. Um, I think you can actually buy it now. Uh, if you're willing to spend the you know, fortune that it's uh, charged, um, you know, wait. Better wait for the um, paperback to come out. Um, okay, so uh, I mean, this is a this is a really good question, and it's uh, something again I struggle with. You know, we all have these great struggles in um, uh, you know, longer re research projects like, like this, and I had um, hoped to engage much more. Um, in much more detail around indigenous sovereignty questions and to really try and challenge and displace um, the dominant modern framing of sovereignty from, from this um, perspective. Um, partly it was a question of um, time and space that precluded me from engaging with this literature, which I didn't know very well um, uh, beforehand. And also a sensitivity to the, the need to engage with those traditions in a very careful and con, uh, considered way. And I suppose I just made the a kind of uh, decision, uh, I hope a considered one, to situate this uh, argument within a particular tradition of thinking about sovereignty, um, which is, um, you know, uncompromisingly, unhelpfully, but uncompromisingly uh, Eurocentric. I mean, partly the, you know, is it, in terms of the traditions of thinking, the traditions of um, uh, scholarship that I'm, that I'm engaging with. I mean, in, partly it's because this is where the problem lies. You know? I mean, the problems that we're facing are, are about um, how concepts that have been mobilised, you know, sovereignty, rights, etc., that have been, uh, emerged through a, a um, through European modernity um, have engendered the situation that we're in. So working within that tradition has um, uh, seemed, um, uh, uh, you know, apt in a sense to addressing the nature of the challenge that we, uh, that we face. I mean, in terms of thinking about the Anthropocene as a particular, and the tradition of the Anthropocene as a particular framed by, I mean, I addressed this in, in some detail in the, in the book and no, I, I'm no great fan of the Anthropocene <laughs> um, uh, framing um, and the Anthropocene concept, and it brings with it such a lot of baggage, rightfully so, you know, and, and the critiques of the Anthropocene along the lines that you suggested, I think are absolutely essential. Um, 
the, the, the question is, well, what's the alternative term that you use? And you end up finding yourself in other kinds of eddies and, and problems. Is it the capitalist scene? Well, is it just capitalism that's to, to, to blame here? I mean, is that necessarily the, the most useful framing to frame it all around political economy? I mean, maybe, but that excludes other kinds of considerations about political form um, and and the role of perhaps you know, the role of extractivism, which has a much longer history than the than the history of uh, capitalism. You know, so whatever frame we use, they're always going to be somewhat um, compromised. Um, uh, and so, you know, I, I've ended up using it part, the, the term anthropocene partly because it has generated so much interest, and I think actually attending to the way in which it's able to bring these conversations together, that you can start to have dialogue between um, lawyers, um, uh, Marxist theorists of political economy, uh, geologists, ecologists, all kind of circulating around the same themes, seems to me a productive thing, even if we end up critiquing the, the, the terms that are, that are established um, within the concept itself. Um, so yeah, so I'm, I'm conscious of those uh, limitations with the concept, but I still, uh, in the absence of a better term, I sort of stuck with it and, and to try and attend to those kind of um, collisions that Kathleen mentioned right at the beginning, uh, disciplinary collisions that the Anthropocene provokes. Thanks, Dan. I can't see any more questions at the moment. I'm just looking across the screens. Um, but I might um, <laughs> ask another if, if there are none forthcoming. Just, just developing some of those ideas um, in response to Sandia's question, but also in response to my earlier question around this kind of intervention in this scholarship and law and humanities scholarship more specifically. And one of the themes that you just touch on um, towards the end of the book is around the idea of imagining and developing a law and in humanities scholarship. And that um, idea draws upon a lot of, um, of, of different um, people's work, um, which we won't go into in detail, but I wondered if you could just um, speak briefly on about this idea um, and how this kind of connects with um, some of the broader aspirations that you've spoken about earlier around disciplinary collapse, however tentative that might be, um, to which you point to as a necessary response to the challenges of this um, thing that we're calling the Anthropocene. Thanks. Yeah, uh, thanks, Kathy. I mean, just to pick up one term you just used there, which is about disciplinary collapse. I mean, I'm I'm actually very skeptical of disciplinary collapse. I'm more interested in you know, disciplinary dialogue. Um, I mean, part of the challenges I think that the Anthropocene provokes, and some of the kind of rather heated debates, uh, you know, puffed up debates, usually by men. Um, about whether this was the right name to use for the um, for this new epoch, you know, rushing to name this new thing and rushing to find the start date for this thing. Um, uh, but part of the misunderstandings I think that took place there was about disciplinary specificity, and actually the and, and I think part of what these new collisions or these new dialogues that need to take place are potentially around this notion I gesture towards of the law and the inhumanities. 
um, I think need to be sensitive to disciplinary distinctiveness and the tr particular traditions of thought that are being mobilized when particular claims are being made within a specific discipline, rather than to think of um, a kind of uh, collapsing of disciplinary dis uh, dis distinctions. Um, but I mean, the, this idea of the inhumanities uh, is mentioned in passing in the uh, in, in the book and is very gestural. So, um, but it's something that I'm trying to think a little bit more carefully about now in um, subsequent projects. Um, as well, you know, Kathleen being involved in some conversations that I've been having um, around these themes. And I guess very you know very briefly, but I think the um, aim is to try and connect up three sort of senses of the inhuman, which is one is the inhuman as a moral designation, the inhumanity of certain practices, processes that are absolutely instrumental to producing the, uh, the Anthropocene, slavery, um, expropriation, displacement of peoples, um, and so forth, are, are absolutely integral to understanding the onset of the, uh, the, the Anthropocene and the, and the climate crisis, historically and contemporaneously. The inhuman as a, a confrontation at the limits of the human and a, and a need to rearticulate an alternative sense of the human subject as being co-constitutive with non-human, more than human agencies. Um, and the sense of the um, inhumanities as a kind of generative critique of the humanities and the traditions um, of humanism that I uh, uh, briefly mentioned before. Mm -hmm. So I think, you know, around... It's around these questions with the Anthropocene and the climate crisis as being a kind of broad framer, framing uh, device um, that, are, that I'm suggesting we might kind of explore this, this notion of uh, law, and, law and the inhumanities, which is both challenging existing traditions within law and humanities uh, scholarship, but also um, uh, uh, seeking to um, retain the distinctive insights that uh, um, historical, theoretical, um, aesthetic uh, research can um, uh, can share on these problematics. Thanks so much, Dan. And um, I think that's a good point at which to close. Um, we've reached our time, but thank you everybody for for joining us. Um, this has been a uh, stimulating and illuminating conversation, and um, we look forward to more as um, as more of you read. Dan's wonderful book and um, continue the conversation. So thank you to Dan. Thank you to uh, Tim, my co-host, and uh, Sandhya, our director um, of ILA, and um, all of you for participating. Thanks very much. Thanks so much. Thanks so much, everyone. And I know it's a tough time for most of you in Victoria and uh, elsewhere in Australia. So um, wishing you all the best and uh, thanks for joining for the conversation. You've been listening to the ILLA podcast. To find out more, go to soundcloud.com forward slash ILLA podcast. That's double I-L-A-H podcast.